About three weeks ago, my sister Beverly and I were seated at her breakfast table, and she, knowing that she was looking at death, knowing that she was fighting a losing battle with cancer, had gone down to about 86 pounds and looked like a skeleton, said, Ted, what's going to happen to me? Let me tell you a little bit about how I answered that question and why I answered it the way I did. My sister Beverly was briefly in God's church, but very, very briefly from the time of her late teens until perhaps her mid-twenties when she had become one of the singers together with the Ambassador Corral and myself on my father's original television program back in 1955. And earlier when my sister Beverly had begun to take voice lessons from Leon Ettinger in Ambassador College, and she had a very sweet and a very good voice, she had begun for the first time in her life to really gain a little bit of self-respect. I think growing up as a young teenager, Beverly had always felt like she was an ugly duckling and pretty much left out of things. And even though she had some close girlfriends, they weren't many. And she habitually would go to a roller rink with one of those friends and sometimes alone where she met the man who eventually was to become her husband, Mr. James Gott. Almost arbitrarily, the ministry in 1954 or 5 decided that makeup was against God's law. And based upon certain interpretations of the third chapter of Isaiah and other things in the Bible about Jezebel, who allegedly painted her face and looked out the window, and that was bad, a booklet was written, an edict handed down, and the church, and that included me and all of the young ministers at that time who were very much in favor of that edict, outlawed makeup. My sister, who had only a few years earlier finally discovered a little bit of self-respect and had begun to appear not only on her own program but elsewhere and use her beautiful voice and sing, was utterly devastated, as many other women were who, of course, would use a certain modicum of makeup to close up to perhaps take care of skin blemishes or to overcome a muddy complexion or acne when they were a child or whatever, and it gave them a certain amount of, of respect. Without going into all of that, let me just say that my sister Beverly decided not to remove her makeup, and my father decided to excommunicate her from the church. He did so. She was never allowed back to services, and that was far more devastating than anything else that had ever happened to her. From that time on, 1955 until perhaps the early 1970s, my father and my sister Beverly were completely estranged. Every time he would talk to her about the children, she refused to put them in imperial school, he would talk about a lake of fire. So knowing very intimately all of these things that had happened in the family and why my sister Beverly had been excommunicated from the church and why the estrangement had occurred, I then remembered that when she had a very good job with a mortuary as a receptionist and it had a good health program and good insurance and good retirement, my father asked her sometime after the death of my mother, when he had mellowed a little bit and gotten a little older, if she would kindly condescend to become his social secretary and accompany him on trips around the world, which she did for a number of years, and was able to accompany him on his arm to banquets attended by such people as the Emperor of Japan, 
as other emperors and kings, prime ministers, premiers, and presidents of countries all over the world, where every lady at that table present was wearing makeup. All of the foreign ladies, all of those who were members of various educational institutions or civic organizations, my sister, Mrs. Stanley Rader, uh, other people who accompanied my father, so that his entire entourage always dressed like normal women everywhere. They didn't go into these occasions before an emperor or a king for a banquet or a speech from my father, looking for all the world like some religious sect from uh, southeast Georgia or somewhere else. They just looked like people you might expect to find on the street in any big city in the United States. The young woman my father then subsequently met and who began to travel with them and became a close acquaintance of my sister Beverly went to my father one day and argued that since he was going to all of these meetings with all of the ladies accompanying him on the G2 wearing makeup, shouldn't he look into this? I was away, and I won't go into that, on a personal appearance campaign up in Seattle, Washington when he did just that. He called a group of the ministers that he looked upon as scholars together, went to a lunch with them, had them research it. They said there is a paper being passed around that all of us have been studying. We were going to present to you anyway, and so he asked to see the paper. And in that week, he changed it back again, so it was perfectly all right to wear makeup, and I was astounded when I came home to Pasadena and discovered that he had made that change. When I was ousted from his side, one of the nails in my coffin was that I had surreptitiously changed the makeup doctrine and had put makeup back into the church without him even knowing about it. That was very difficult for me to understand since I hadn't even known the change was going to be made. It was made at Ramona's suggestion, Dad, I feel funny, or Herbert, I feel funny in washing it off when I go to church and leaving it on when I accompany you at affairs of state. And you can understand her conflict. And so they wrote another booklet, and this time, of course, it showed the real truth about the subject. And so then at some period of time, the change was made, and I think it was probably 80, 81, and makeup was out again. Then after my father's death, makeup was back in again. Now it's all right. And so the church is pretty much divided down the middle. Approximately half of the women refuse to wear it. Maybe they have problems with the women who do. Many of the women do. But such is the tragedy of alienation of a family over religious issues where a person will actually use religion to use it as a lever to get a person to do something that he wants them to do. Isn't it strange that when I wrote a booklet that I thought was one of the kindest, one of the most soft-pedaled booklets I've ever written, it was actually a book intended for the general public entitled, Oh God, Where Are You When I Need You? And I was paid $2,000 for the original manuscript of that booklet and then had about a two-year fight on my hands to get it back when the multi-level marketing company that was going to publish the booklet went belly up and weren't able to publish it in a small hardback the way they'd intended, and finally got the manuscript out of a warehouse. I had a copy, but I wanted to get the publishers, rather the author's, rights to the book, and they had it in a warehouse up in uh, Vancouver, B.C. So I then subsequently self-published it under the title, The Answer to Unanswered Prayer. And while my sister was struggling with cancer, I took her a copy of that book back in January and asked her to read it, signed it. I talked to her some weeks later on the telephone, and she said, I had just gotten a little way into the book 
Ted, and I couldn't read it any further. And I said, well, why is that? She said, well, when I got to the part about God the Father, about the fatherhood of God, it scared me, and I was afraid, and so I put the book down. I have to go back and look at that book again and reread it to see what in the world could be frightening about some of the quips and anecdotes and about the role of a father, about the fatherhood of God and Christ the Son and how there is such a loving relationship between God and his children. Uh, Harry Truman once said, I don't think my father was a total failure. After all, he was the father of the President of the United States. And there were some other rather humorous statements there. And I wondered, why could my sister Beverly feel threatened or feel like she was afraid over reading this warm, and I don't think there was a single exclamation point, I know there were no capital letters, no underlined words to speak of in the entire book. It's a very understated, very soft, as I said, uh, softly presented book. Well, some weeks before she died, at her own request, her son Larry went out and bought a brand new modern English language Bible. And my sister began to read it. And she told me on the telephone she was really beginning to read and discover things that she had never thought of and never known before. And you know, she said, Ted, this is the first time I've been able to read the Bible in many, many years, 40 years or more. I said, why? She said, because every time I read the King James, all I could hear was dad. But she said, now that I read it in modern English language, it sounds totally different than the way he made it sound. And I don't feel quite so fearful and quite so threatened. You have to understand then that I was dealing with an older sister, older by 12 years than I, who was extremely fearful of death, who did not really know what to expect, whether to expect hellfire, a lake of fire, instant awareness, long protracted suffering, the penalty for sin, and not putting her children in imperial schools, or whatever was going to occur. I could tell you a great deal more, but that's un unnecessary. Basically, let's just say that my sister Beverly was much like my mother, and much like millions of other mothers. She was extremely insecure where her children were concerned, and even up to this age of nearly 73, my sister required that her son Larry, every morning when he left for work, call him when, she, when he got there. When her daughter was over visiting her, lived out in the western part of Los Angeles and had to drive all the way home, she invariably had to call when she got home. If the call was ten minutes late, my sister was worried sick. She worried continually about her children, and in that sense did not have a great deal of calm acceptance of events or of faith. She was fearful of death. She had read many philosophers. She had a wall filled with books, including some of the Oriental and Indian and other philosophers, and studied many different kinds of religions, and yet she was never satisfied with any of these. So having been driven away from the truth of God many, many years ago, she really wasn't sure. So when she said, Ted, what's going to happen to me, I thought maybe I'd better go back to some of the very beginning essentials and talk about the fact that there is a God, try to give her a few thoughts to prove that to her, talk about what the Bible really says, and continually I was dealing with apologetics and telling her, Beverly, the God in which I believe and the Jesus Christ I serve is not the one 
that you came to fear and to be in terror of that was portrayed to you as a vengeful God who seeks punishments for sin and had to tell her that I had no fear about her eventual entry into the kingdom of God and that she would be absolutely oblivious to the passage of time. But I did so, first of all, by talking about our human lives and the little grandbaby she was expecting that she will now not see until the resurrection, who is due in about two and a half weeks, from her daughter-in-law, her youngest son, who was named after me, Ted Gott, is expecting in about two and a half weeks. She very much wanted to see that little child, but now she will not. And so I explained about human birth, but I did so by talking about things like an ear of wheat, or an ear of corn, or a radish, or a carrot, or the vegetables we eat. And I talked about life, and what is life. Well, if you think in those terms, what is life? After all, it's the difference between something that is living and moving and doing something, that is imbibing hydrogen and oxygen and all the nutrients from the soil, and it's subsisting from the elements of the earth like carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, sulfur, phosphorus, potassium, and if you remember from school having to memorize all of the various elements that we are imbibing in our food, calcium, iron, magnesium, also sodium, chlorine, manganese, you can see that I couldn't remember them all offhand, I had to look them up, copper, iodine, and fluorine, and lots of others besides. And that when we are begotten, there is a tiny little pattern that is actually to become a part of a human female egg. But that as the mother is imbibing all these foodstuffs through the womb and feeding what is originally a little zygote to an umbilical that is yet to be really formed, protoplasm flowing to actually make cells, cells being formed so that the nucleus and the cytoplasm actually become living cells, some of which are light-sensitive if they're in your eye, and otherwise not light-sensitive if they're in your intestine. But they look under a microscope almost identical. And how, even though there is a little pattern that we cannot see with the naked eye in a kernel of corn, it can become a huge stalk with maybe eight ears and double and triple rows of huge, great, big grains of corn that is, in a true sense, new wealth. You have never eaten a pea or a, corn, a kernel of corn or a radish or a stem of broccoli for the second time. Each one you ever ate was utterly unique in all of history. There has never been another piece of broccoli like the last one you ate. Oh, it looks the same, but it's not the same one. It merely came out of the ground according to a little pattern that was in a seed, and if you take that seed and take it apart with a razor blade and look at it under the most powerful microscope, you can't see anything that looks like broccoli. But that pattern is there. In the same way that when a man engenders a child, there is a pattern there. And what emerges from that womb nine months later is so many hundreds, I guess millions of times larger than the tiny little microscopic dot, the little pattern that started all of this process, that there is simply no comparison. New wealth is produced by reproduction and by the cycle of life that we see fish that actually can lay tens of thousands of eggs and that one mother, like a fire ant colony, can in one year produce perhaps hundreds of thousands of offspring. And there is a pattern there, and to that pattern is added all the minerals and the nutrients that eventually make a complete fleshly being 
that is in a pattern of the parents, but is utterly different in the sense that it's not the same protoplasm, it is not the same carbon, hydrogen, phosphorus, potassium, iron, and magnesium, but completely different, having come from the soil and been added to that pattern that filled it out and formed it and shaped it and made it in the image of the two parents. Now, I went through a lot of this, about a physical pattern that is being repeated continually in the universe, and how a spiritual pattern is also being completed and will be filled with spiritual essence according to a spiritual pattern that Almighty God has placed within humankind. She was very familiar with the doctrine of the immortality of the soul, and very familiar with the fact that my father rejected it, as did all the members of the Church of God's Seventh Day, as well as the Worldwide Church, and many others as well. And yet, because she knew death was near, she wasn't really satisfied because she wasn't really sure. In other words, she didn't have confidence, she didn't have faith. I think just barely before she died, she began to get a little bit of faith. I told her about many scriptures, and I want to take you through a few of them right now. Let's turn to Job, the 14th chapter, beginning in verse 1. Man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. He comes forth like a flower and is cut down. I found it quite moving and I think quite touching to relate what had occurred when my wife and I got to the little church of the flowers in Forest Lawn just last Wednesday. I had to preach probably the hardest funeral that I will ever have to preach. And I won't say this too humorously because I will bite my tongue, but it was interesting that sitting at my feet were Joseph Tkach, Herman Hay, D. Partian, and several others among the ministers and leading people from the Ambassador College and Worldwide Church of God who were there, and I was glad to see them there, out of respect for my father and his daughter. As my wife and I got there earlier to the little church of the flowers, it had alcoves on the side with glass windows that formed behind the columns and the pillars of the little stone church that only seated about 90 or 100 people, kind of a little hothouse. So that behind glass you would see all these beautiful shrubs and chrysanthemums and flowers, and it was called the little church of the flowers. My wife and I got there early, and we were the only ones there with my sister's casket with all the beautiful flowers up there on the stage. We walked up to the stage with tears in our eyes, and as we turned around, I heard something and looked in time to see a large chrysanthemum fall from the huge bunch of flowers on top of the casket and to fall to the floor. And I said with my voice choked with emotion, that's just like us, honey. We're here like a flower. We blossom a little while, and then sometimes some of us fall to the ground. I used that line in my sermon a little later not realizing I was quoting it from the 14th chapter and the second verse of Job, he comes forth like a flower and is cut down. He flees also as a shadow and continues not. And you do open your eyes upon such an one and bring me into judgment with thee. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Job is arguing with his antagonists. Not one. Seeing his days are determined, the number of his months are with you. You have appointed his bounds that he cannot pass. Turn from him that he may rest till he shall accomplish his hireling this day. For there is hope of a tree, if it's cut down, that it will sprout again, and that the tender branch thereof will not cease. Though the root thereof wax old in the earth, and the stock thereof die in the ground, yet through the scent of water it will bud and bring forth boughs like a plant. 
But man dieth and wasteth away. Yea, man gives up the spirit, Hebrew word ruach, he expires, same phrase in the English language, and where is he? As the waters fail from the sea, and the flood decays and dries up, so man lieth down and riseth not. Till the heavens be no more, they shall not awake, nor be raised out of their sleep. And then Job prayed, O oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would keep me secret until your wrath be passed, that you would point me a set time and remember me. If a man die, shall he live again? All the days of my appointed time will I wait till my change come. You shall call, and I will answer thee. You will have a desire to the work of your hands. There are so many psalms that relate to this. The sixth psalm, verse 5, there is no remembrance of God in the grave. And in Psalm 49, I'll turn to that one and read it, just a couple of them in passing. Psalm 49, beginning in verse 9. Well, let's go back to verse 7 and read up to it. None of them can by any man's uh, means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their soul, or life, Hebrew word is ruach, is precious, and it ceaseth forever, that he should still live forever and not seek corruption. For he sees that wise men die, likewise the fool and the brutish person perish, and leave their wealth to others. Their inward thought is that their houses will continue forever, and their dwelling places to all generations. So they name their lands after themselves. Nevertheless, man, being in honor, abides not. He's just like the animals that perish. This their way is their folly, yet their posterity approve their sayings. Like sheep they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them, and the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning, and their beauty shall consume in the grave from their dwelling. But he says, God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. And in verse 20 of that chapter, man that is in honor and understandeth not is like the beasts that perish. And the same thought is over in Ecclesiastes, the third chapter, where David's son, Solomon, talked about the state of man and a beast being just about identical. He said, verse 19, that which befalls the sons of men befalls beasts. Even one thing befalls them, as the one dies, so dies the other. Yea, they all have one breath, so that a man has no preeminence above a beast, for all is vanity. All go into one place, all are of the dust, and all turn to dust again. Now, there's a scripture here that bears a little bit of research. If you look at other versions, if you look at some of the commentaries, the force of that Hebrew expression is really put as a question. And it should read, who knows whether the spirit of the man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes downward to the earth. I can prove to you that that is the inference by looking at several other scriptures. We'll go to Romans 8 in a moment, but look at Job 32.8, I won't turn to that, in which we read, there is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty gives them understanding. In Romans, the eighth chapter, some of the most well-known scriptures in all the Bible to members of God's church, beginning to read in verse 5, They that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh wholly fleshly, carnal, constituted as physical flesh, cannot please God. 
But you, he says to members of the church, are not in the flesh. How can that be? Because he's not talking to a human physical body. He's not talking to the physical host in which there is a spirit being forming. He is now talking, communicating in spiritual language to a spiritual creature that has been begotten and is gradually being created according to a pattern that was supplied by that spiritual creature's father in heaven. The pattern that is supplied in the womb is a pattern determined by the father. The mother supplies all the nutrients. The mother protects it, preserves it, feeds it, bears it, goes through the pain of delivering it. But the pattern that was put there in that egg that began the process of a little zygote becoming an embryo, becoming a fetus, becoming a full-term baby, was a miraculous process decided by Almighty God, the Creator, at creation. So the Apostle Paul is talking to those creatures in Christ, the new creature in Christ, a converted spiritual mind, not merely a fleshly mind. You're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. God is living. His Spirit is living. It is alive. If His Holy Spirit is in you, it is living in you. It is not static in you. It is not there like a silicone injection of so much inert substance. It is alive. It is living within you. The baby that is in the womb is not so much protoplasm, not some static substance that is awaiting a moment when it will suddenly be converted from matter that has no life, poop, to a living human being just like that. No, no. It is already forming according to the pattern of the Father and is living within the womb. How exciting it is when the young mother first feels life and the little baby moves or she feels a knee or a foot or an elbow. And how exciting is that process nears partrition or birth that that happens much more rap much more often. And you feel the little baby actually turning here and there and getting a little bit of exercise in a womb. And you're aware that there is a living child inside this human female womb. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Talk about an arbitrary, point-blank, plain statement. That's an either-or, one or the other. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ. Well, then how do you receive the Spirit of Christ? And the Bible says, repent and be baptized for the remission or the forgiveness of your sins, and have the hands laid on for the receiving of God's Holy Spirit, and you shall receive the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead. It's considered dead. So what is dead? It isn't the living creature that is in Christ. It is not the baby in the womb, by analogy. What is considered dead is the host, is the body that is the physical body that is considered dead under the penalty of the law, which is death, for having sinned. But the new creature that is to come forth is not even seen yet. I have not seen, neither has it entered into the heart of man, those things that God has prepared or has in store for those that love him. There is no comparison. And as Paul said, as we'll see in a moment, that that which is to come forth from the ground does not emerge except it first die. The grain of corn, 
the grain of wheat, the little mustard seed, the radish seed, the potato, even the body of the potato that has a little eye, it decays, it rots, it dies. But the little germ, the little seed, the little pattern that is there puts down a root and produces sometimes thousands of times the original grain that it was. Then he says, if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by the spirit that dwelleth in you. Is there any great event of history that is any more corroborated than the resurrection of Jesus Christ? By astronomy, by history, by prophecy, by biblical chronology, by the tens of thousands of eyewitnesses, by the many eyewitnesses who wrote the books of the Bible, including the Apostle Paul who insisted there were more than 500 brethren who had been there to see him following his resurrection. Men do not die because they know that in which they believe is a hoax. Yet there were deaths by, first of all, the dozens and eventually the hundreds and finally the thousands and tens of thousands for those who were convicted and convinced that Jesus Christ was alive. First of all, the disciples were not willing witnesses. They didn't want to believe it. They fled, they cursed, they rejected him, they hid themselves from him, and they were not only astounded, but they refused to believe it when Jesus first appeared to them. Doubting Thomas, we're familiar with. The people who actually said, it can't be true. I won't believe it until I see the wounds in his flesh. Did the Jews steal him away? If they had, they would have produced the body. Did the Romans steal him away? If they had, they would have produced the body and paraded it through the streets to put down this growing religion that was emerging. Every one of the logical questions involved by all of the various philosophers and historians and others who have tried to say that the resurrection is a myth, that it was a fraud, that he was in a deep sleep, or a coma, or he faked it, or the whole thing never happened at all, are easily destroyed by the simple logic you can actually find in a brief article in Halley's Bible Handbook about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is incontrovertible that Jesus Christ of Nazareth was raised from the dead. If the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead. Dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead, shall also enliven, reawaken, quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit, not from heaven, not as a divine fiat, as an act of a spirit being billions of years on the other side of the universe who is dealing with merely an inert, dead body, but by the connection, by the interaction, by the spiritual power from that source connected with, it says here, his spirit that lives, that dwells inside of you. Does the spirit leave the body? It may. It may be received by God who gave it. Does it remain there, utterly oblivious, totally asleep, in the blackness of the most profound sleep that you can imagine, but remain with the body or where the body was last when it was disintegrated, eaten by sharks, blown up at Hiroshima, or cremated? I have no ready answer to that, no scientific answer, no clinical answer, but we'll deal with the question in a moment when we see what Paul said. 
Verse 14, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. You have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but have received the spirit of sonship, as the word really means, more than just legal adoption, actual children of the Father, whereby we cry, Abba, an untranslated Hebrew word that means Father. The Spirit itself, that's God's Spirit, bears witness with our spirit. There you see the interaction of both of them, like the flowing of a current through an incandescent bulb, as we have told you by way of analogy in the past. Bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So I told my sister that taking issue with the immortality of the soul is one thing, but perhaps we ought to be a little more prone to suggest very quickly that it's merely a matter of language, that it's merely a matter of the words you use to express something that is quite similar. Because there is something spiritual about a human mind that God says only he can destroy. And that Jesus Christ said, after a man has destroyed the body, there's nothing more he can do to you. So don't fear a man who, after he has killed the body, cannot destroy the soul or the spirit, the pneuma, the suke, rather, in the Greek, the, the language is suke, that means the spirit or the life that is in us. But fear him who, after he has destroyed the body, can destroy that spirit in Gehenna fire. It is given to all men to die once. That's not the wages of sin. After this, it says, the judgment. The wages of sin is described in the 16th chapter of Luke in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, where the rich man sees a wall of flame approaching him and is about to experience Gehenna fire. And that is closer to the old traditional story of the Methodists and all the other mainstream churches who talk about a hell fire than perhaps is comfortable for some people. The difference being that instead of eternal torment, in eternal torturing, it is eternal death by fire, a very unpleasant, extremely painful death of utterly destroying that being that God in himself originally created. The spirit itself bears witness with our spirit. So we have a spirit. There is a human spirit. There is a spirit in man that we are the children of God. And the seed of the father, having attacked and penetrating the egg of the mother, bears witness in the womb that that is my son being formed in that womb. Do you see the analogy? Is it an accident of nature? This cyclical thing we call life that produces after its own kind when God shows in his word that Almighty God is reproducing after his own kind. And as shocking as it may seem to all of us in this room here in East Texas, only two church organizations that I know of, there may be others now that are offshoots of those because they keep coming along every month it seems, so I will include all of those, but those who were sitting at the feet of my father, Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong, from decades and decades ago when God revealed that secret of the universe to him, that Almighty God is reproducing after his own kind and that we shall actually be at the level of the God family, which no church has either the courage or the wisdom or the character to admit or to accept, and that we only have been given the incredible gift of understanding to know what this whole process is that is called salvation. So when I see organizations turning their back on the process of being born again 
and denying this beautiful analogy that is not merely an analogy pulled out of a hat by some theologian, but is an inescapable pattern that Almighty God himself has put in the life cycle, in insects, animals, birds, fish, and men, and that we cannot escape it, and that its relevance and its applicability to the spiritual pattern that God reveals in his word is simply inescapable. So he says, if children, and my son David is expecting a baby, uh, his wife is expecting a baby here in a matter of weeks, and as I said before, the seed of the father with the egg of the mother bears witness in the womb, that is a son of David and Diana. Does anybody doubt the clinical, medical correctness of that statement? Then why do we doubt that the Holy Spirit of God bears witness when it is united with and becomes part with our human spirit that is our character, our personality, whatever it is that makes us who we are, that we are the children of God, God's kids, God's children, that what is being formed inside of this pattern is not protoplasm and is not all of these elements that I mentioned, or minerals, is not hydrogen and oxygen, but is spirit, but it's being formed according to the pattern given it by its Father. And we, as the host of that pattern, are responsible for feeding that which grows by spiritual food in imbibing the truth of God from sermons, Bible studies, what we read, personal Bible study, Profound, silent, prayerful, meditation, prayer, and communication with God. These are our spiritual carrots and broccoli and beans and celery and stews and steaks that are forming spiritual essence, not physical tissue. If children, then heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If you're an heir of a rich uncle, you inherit what he leaves. If you're the heir of God who says, everything is mine, I own it all. The universe is mine. I own all the gold and all the silver. And if Christ has inherited all things when he came back and commissioned his disciples, and he said, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth, therefore go you into all the nations, how much did Christ inherit with his Father? Everything is what he inherited. And we are to be joint heirs with Christ. Co-heirs at the same level, sharing in what he has inherited. Would eternal life be enough if it were in the blackness of darkness of nothingness forever? Why, of course not. But what about in eternity of building, constructing, creating, of thinking, of planning, of energetic work, of joy, of music, of ebullience, of happiness, of fulfillment, of reward, of everything you could ever imagine that is good and great, and fun, and exciting, and rewarding, and fulfilling. How about ten lifetimes, a hundred lifetimes, a million lifetimes of a hundred years of peace, and then a million more, and a billion beyond that, of that kind of living, and excitement, and life? Is it worth it? Is the prize of eternal life worth what we go through for these few fleeting years? What broke me up in hearing about my sister was the incredible suffering she endured. She endured months of agony and pain. She went to the hospital in the final weeks and I had to put a big needle through her back. She was there three days with that needle trying to drain fluids that were threatening to collapse a lung. And finally the needle punctured one lung and it did collapse. And they had to try to fill that lung again. 
She told my sister, Dottie, that she was in agony. My brother-in-law, Vern, that was there, she would vomit every ten minutes. And they were carrying it away and mopping her mouth and being there with her as her body was actually feeding upon itself. And everywhere they put in a needle, a new cancer would grow. The cancer was growing faster than any other part of her body. She went through agony. I cried like a little three-year-old that had been whipped when I heard about the pain and the suffering. But when she died, I sighed with relief because the agony was over. No phones are ringing. She's not worried about Sherry or Larry. She's not fearful about the future. She isn't aware of any nervousness or fear or worry. She is in the most profound, deep sleep. And thanks be to God, on that last Friday night, a little over a week ago, she went to bed that night. They were not only feeding her intravenously, but giving her powerful painkillers intravenously. She went to sleep, and at some time during that night slipped into a coma. And she was still in that coma all the next day until 2.30 in the afternoon one week ago, when she ceased breathing without ever knowing that that was happening to her. And I thank God that she slipped away into unconsciousness and died in a deep sleep instead of when she was awake and aware. Leaving this portion of the Bible, let me go right quickly to 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, and show you the scriptures that I used in the funeral service itself and what I explained to Beverly about the resurrection. I don't use the whole chapter, but I break into the middle of it, that if in this life only, verse 19 in 1 Corinthians 15, we have hope in Christ, we're of all men most miserable. In other words, if only while we're alive we have hope, but after we're gone there is no hope, and death means all hope is perished, how miserable it is to know that that is so. Many people suspect that that might be so. That death is the end of everything, but it's not according to God's word. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept? For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. I did not go into the details of two resurrections. What difference does it make? the lapse of time of which a person is unaware, whether ten minutes, ten years, or ten thousand years. It is identical to the person who is resurrected. They have been asleep for the batting of an eye, the twinkling of an eyelash, quicker than you can slap your two hands together, and they are awake again, unaware of the passage of time. I once explained to a neighbor of mine, and I explained it a little bit to my sister, and I explained it out of this pulpit or another one under the title of a sermon entitled, You Can Take It With You, that I believe that 90-some percent of all the human race is going to be saved and eventually be a part of the kingdom of God, because God says that he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance into a receiving of the truth. And I mentioned how many people tend to think that those, no matter how good they are, if they are not in your little cliquish group, no matter how honest, how patient, no matter how hardworking and how thrifty, no matter what a good father or mother, no matter what a good neighbor, no matter any of the qualities of character, if they simply thought in their mind that they're going either to heaven or to hell when they die, or they thought in their mind that they have an immortal soul when they don't, or they thought in their mind they ought to go to church on Sunday instead of the Sabbath, that they're lost for all eternity and they're going to burn in Gehenna fire. The essence of my sermon was, 
that you can see in those many occasions where resurrections occurred, and there were several, remember that there were many who were righteous people who were unearthed and taken right out of the sarcophagy and walked back to be joyously greeted by their own families at the resurrection, or the death rather, of Jesus Christ. And what a shocking phenomenon that must have been. Lazarus, was he the same person? Did he have the same character? Did he look the same? Was it Lazarus that Jesus resurrected? Yes, of course it was. And the occasions that we read of, of those who appeared in vision to the disciples whom Jesus privileged to be with him at the transfiguration, how did they know that they were talking to Moses and Elijah unless they heard names being spoken? But they would have looked the same, although they couldn't have known what they would have looked like. But they would have sounded the same. They would have been the same. They would have had the same personality. So the point is, that which comes out of the grave, even at the great white throne judgment, is the resurrected being as he or she was when they died, replete with their same store of knowledge, with their same store of character. If they develop basically good character, I think they have a head start. If they died with someone telling them the truth, even if it was beyond them and they couldn't accept it, I think they will accept it then. I think the chances of someone who was a good man or a good woman, though a Methodist or a Baptist or Church of Christ, and who basically thought they were worshiping God but just didn't know a lot of the truth about God, I think their chances are probably 99 and 4400 percent on the positive that they will be in God's kingdom, they will accept the truth when it is presented to them. That's what I think. So I told my sister, Beverly, the good qualities that you have accumulated, that you have taken as a part of your personality, that have become a part of you in your life, will be with you when you're alive again. And you will see then that God is not threatening. And you will see then that everything that you thought was fearful and bad and evil is wonderful and good and patient and merciful and just. And tried to tell her that she need not fear and dealt with this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, not only in her funeral but to her personally. Now is Christ risen and become the first fruits of them that slept. For as by man came death, or since by man came death, verse 21, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man, let's pretend that this scripture means exactly what it says, and look what it does to the doctrines of much of mainstream evangelical Christianity. Every man in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. Therefore was there anyone who ever went to heaven before Christ? No. Afterward, they that are Christ at his coming, therefore was there anyone from the time of Christ until this instant and until the time of his coming who will go to heaven or be received into the kingdom of God? The answer is no. If this scripture means exactly what it says and is telling us exactly what it means, then it means every man in his own order. Christ was first, and afterward, plain English, they who were Christian, converted, and have the Spirit of God, will be resurrected at his coming, and not one second before. Then comes the end, 
when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. Now, in verse 35, and I dealt with this, but some man will say, how are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? And Paul says that's a foolish question when you think about it, because that which you plant, and he's dealing with an agrarian society, is not enlivened except it die, it decay, it rot, as the bean or the grain of corn or the kernel of wheat. And that which you sow, you don't sow the body that shall be. Why, there are little bits and pieces out on the end of the grain of the ear of wheat that might look like it, but look at all that's in between. There might be thousands upon thousands of grains of corn, but look at the huge stalk and the ears and the tassels and the leaves. And so when you put the little yellow kernel in the ground, in the ground it is not what you're going to see. But bare grain. It may chance of wheat or some other grain, but God gives it a body because of a pattern that is there in that seed. As it has pleased him unto every seed his own body. All flesh is not the same. There's the flesh of men, of beasts, and other fish, and other birds. There are celestial and terrestrial bodies, and the glory of one is one, and the glory of the other is another. There's one glory of the sun, and lesser glory of the moon, verse 41, another glory of the stars, and they're all different. And it's like that, verse 42, in the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. My sister's human physical body had totally melted away. It was like a skeleton covered with parchment when she was put in her clothes and in a casket and died. But the mind, the personality, the memories, the character was all there. The knowledge, everything she'd read, everything she'd experienced, everything that she'd come to know in the last few weeks of her life, it was all there. So it's like that in the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, oh, is it ever, and it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it certainly is. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Verse 50, this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, because Paul himself at the time he wrote that expected to be alive, and he was not. He didn't know that until he wrote the second letter to Timothy, that he was going to be offered up, and the time of his departure had come. When he wrote this letter to the Corinthians, he still expected to be alive at the second coming of Christ. God did not allow him or privilege him to know about all, if it would have been a privilege, if you can imagine, to know that century after century after century was going to pass, and how that would have been overwhelming to him rather than encouraging. And so he was not allowed to know. He thought Christ might come in his lifetime. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And we're living in the time that Paul thought he was living in. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. I want to turn to Job 19, verse 25. In Job 19 and verse 25, very interesting phrase, the way he put it. He is saying, Oh, that my words were now written. I'll read up to it as you're turning there in verse 23. Oh, that they were printed in a book. And sure enough, they have been. That they were graven with an iron pen and led in the rock forever. For I know, this is something he wishes could have been put down in lead in a rock, because he said, I know this, and I know that I know it. I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, 
Yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. You know, the time is going to come when my sister Beverly and Dan Cormody and so many others who have gone that way, my father, my mother, my brother Dick, so many of your loved ones, your family, your grandparents, you could name them off, all of them that you love so much and that you miss so much when they're gone, will come out of the grave and have their own experience. How marvelous it's going to be when my sister Beverly comes out of that vault in which she has been placed over in Forest Lawn near Glendale, California, and wake up in the kingdom of God and look around and say, why, it's just exactly like Ted said it would be.